Hello and welcome to Falmouth Vineyard's audio podcast. We're really grateful that you're joining us today. Our vision is to see Cornwall coming alive through the hope and freedom that Jesus brings. To find out more about who we are or how to connect with us, visit falmouthvineyard.org. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, welcome everyone. If I haven't met you before, my name's Nathan. It is great to see you this morning. Um, i put that on the floor. As I said earlier, we're going to be carrying on our series on the book of Daniel. If you have missed any, you can catch up with all of them on the YouTube channel um, and on the podcast as well. You can, the links to which are on our website if you need all that kind of stuff. Um, we have been reading through this book. This book is in the Old Testament. It's written out of a time of Jewish history about 600 years before the time of Jesus. It's a time of turmoil. Jerusalem has been conquered first by the Babylonians. They plunder the temple. They destroy it and take the holy items along with the brightest and best of the royal family. And they take them into exile. They take them into Babylon. And these guys, these people, this royal royalty in some ways, are indoctrinated into the Babylonian way. They're given new names, they're given a new language, and a whole load of new gods. And the book of Daniel, which we're looking at, is about one of these exiles, he's called Daniel, and three of his mates. And instead of being assimilated into the culture of Babylon, they hold on to their faith in the one true God. So we are up to chapter 6. And it's probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. You probably will have heard of it before, Daniel and the Lion's Den. Now, some of the bits of the Bible are a little bit like Lord of the Rings. They're kind of kings and nations conquering each other, good, fighting evil. Um, and I, I, I worry when I come to passages which I'm thinking, are oh, people are probably going to have heard this before. What angle do we go at this passage from? Because it feels so familiar in some ways. One of the key themes that runs throughout the Bible is the journey towards the promised land. Everyone likes a good story about a journey, don't they? This narrative of traveling through the ups and the downs from one place to the other. And the imagery and theme of being in the promised land at peace or being outside of the promised land in exile is a story, a narrative that runs throughout the Old and the New Testament. Well, the book of Daniel is about a time in exile. It's about being away from home in a strange place. It's a theme picked up in the New Testament. As followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, we are exiles living in a foreign land, awaiting the kingdom of God, seeing its inbreaking, but at the same time longing for a time when it fully dwells within the world, when there is justice, when there is peace. And what we see in the life of Daniel is a man of courage, a man of faith, who keeps his, his eyes set on the one true God, despite all the turmoil around him. And in chapter 6, we find that Darius the Mede is king. Nebuchadnezzar is gone, and so is Belshazzar. Now the Babylonians have conquered the, been conquered by the Medes. And what, one of the themes of Daniel, the book, is Daniel is steady and constant and all around him the empires and the kingdoms are changing and shifting so if you've got your bible or if you've got a phone with an app on it scroll or turn to daniel chapter 6 and we're going to start reading in verse 1 apologies if my pronunciation is not correct for all you babylonian experts out there 
little aside before we started this. Went to um, went to Exeter Library in the half term, not library, museum in the half term. Was looking through the exhibits, came across this, which should have put up on the screen, which was a um, scroll piece from the city of Babylon that flourished 3,000 years ago. Its forces invaded Samaria. Later, the Assyrians from northern Mesopotamia dominated the region from their cities of Nimrod and Nineveh. They ruled as far as the Mediterranean. About 2,600 years ago, Babylon again became strong. King Nebuchadnezzar enlarged the city. He built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and the world's first museum. I was like, we just did that in church. That's bonkers. <laughs> it's in a museum. That's crazy. Anyway, kids weren't impressed. I was like, kids, we've done this in church. <laughs> anyway, Exeter uh, Museum is really good. Really good. Well, we recommend it. So, um, Chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to, the, to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. This is where the plot thickens. At this time, the administrators and the satrap tries to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him. Which, no, I'm not going to make a political joke. Because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Again, I'm not going to make any political joke. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it is something to do with the law of God. Now, let's just stop there. Pause. Press pause, because that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Daniel had practiced such faithfulness to God that the only way to accuse him and try to destroy his life was if they tried to make Daniel's faithfulness illegal. They're like, how are we going to nail this guy? He is above reproach. Nothing he does is wrong. The way he treats people, what he does in his free time, how he manages his money, how he treats everyone around him, there's nothing we've got on him. We can find no dirt on this guy. There's nothing we can accuse him with. The only thing we can accuse him with is worshipping Yahweh, worshipping God. That's it. So how about we do this? We make worshipping God illegal. And then we know there's no way he's not going to worship God. There's no way he's not going to show up to pray. And then what we do, that's when we'll get him. That's when he'll break the law. So that's what they did. Verse 7, issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any God or human being during the next 30 days, temporary law, 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So Darius does this. And there was a custom that not even the king could change the law or amend it or could pardon anyone. So what do you think Daniel did? Faced with a temporary 30-day ban on prayer. It's only 30 days. That's crazy, isn't it? Surely he would just pray quietly. We were praying the other day. Like Edie was like, can I pray in my head? And I was like, yeah, but it's not very encouraging to us if you pray in your head. But it's not really such a big deal, surely, is it? But it was to Daniel. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel heard and learned that this decree had been published, interestingly... He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. At this time, Daniel is probably in his late 70s or early 80s. 
Habits built over decades of obedience aren't swayed by the whims of a king. Aristotle said excellence isn't an act, it's a habit. You could say the same about courage. Courage is a habit built up of small decisions. So Daniel goes home and prays. He doesn't go straight to the king as he's done before. He doesn't rebel directly against the king. Instead, he resists. Prayer is resistance. I came across this really interesting observation in a commentary. I do read them occasionally. It says this, because, because Jesus is in his teaching on Matthew 6, if you remember that, says go into your, almost into your closet, into that secret place and pray. Don't let your prayers be known for their many words. G.E. Golden Gay, out of Word Biblical on Daniel, he says this, when prayer is fashionable, it's time to pray in secret. But when prayer is under pressure, to pray in secret is to give the appearance of fearing the king more than God. Rebellion would have been going to the king. Prayer is resistance. Walter Wink says this, rebellion simply acknowledges the absoluteness and ultimacy that word? Ultimacy. Of the emperor's power and attempts to seize it. Prayer denies that ultimate authority altogether by acknowledging the higher power. You see the sovereignty of God over and over again is a theme that comes up in this book. And a question to take away and ponder or ask in your small group this week might be, if prayer was outlawed, would we be rumbled? If prayer was outlawed, would we be rumbled? So we had another prime minister this month, and um, one one thought was, what if what if another prime minister came in? Doesn't seem that far fetched at the moment, does it? And thought that prayer was the worst thing in the whole world. So they wrote a law and said, now this is illegal. This thing you Christians do, prayer, is illegal. Not only that, we're going to keep an eye on you and your neighbours are going to keep an eye on you and dob you in if they see you praying, what would you do? What would your prayer life look like? Would it even be affected by this new law at all? It's interesting, isn't it? What is your instinct when trouble and persecution come your way? Daniel's reaction is to pray, even though he knows it's going to get himself in trouble. He didn't panic. He didn't demonstrate. He doesn't despair. He prays. He models an incredible reaction. Even in the way he prays, he orientates himself towards Jerusalem. His orientation, when he prays, he's orientated towards the promised land, towards the one true king, Jerusalem, this holy place. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus teaches us to pray like the, um, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's prayer is oriented around, holy is your name, Lord God. Would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? We pray with heaven in our minds. Our country feels a little bit like it's in a season of turmoil. Third prime minister of the year, interest rates increasing, inflation increasing, cost of living increasing. But despite all of this, God is sovereign. He is on the throne. And every image of God on the throne in the Bible has him seated. Not panicked, not rushing around like a lunatic, not stressed, not surprised, but seated, in control. Daniel, in this situation, recognizes the true authority of God. He takes his worries and lays them at the throne of God in prayer. There's an old hymn that says this. You might recognize it. What a friend we have in Jesus. What needless pain we bear. 
all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Peter says, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So what have we got going on in our lives, whether it's persecution or not, that we just need to bring to God in prayer as an act of resistance? Number two, persecution tests faith. Don't really talk that much. We haven't done so far about spiritual persecution. According to Open Doors, the number one country where Christians are persecuted for their faith is now Afghanistan. Since the Taliban have returned to power, the situation has got a lot worse. If a Christian's faith is discovered, their family, clan, or tribe has to save its honor, commas, by disowning the believer or even killing them. Because leaving Islam is seen as a sign of insanity, Christians that convert may be forcibly sectioned in a psychiatric hospital. We can sometimes lose sight of the global church by focusing just on our local situation. The early church was no stranger to persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And in fact, conditions of the New Testament apostles for the apostles were more like the conditions many face in North Korea, in Somalia, in Libya, in Yemen, Pakistan, Iran, or Eritrea. And that is not an exhaustive list. For us, there is very little, if no, persecution at all. We currently basically have complete religious freedom. And because of that, it's possible to be lulled into a sleepy, apathetic, ineffectual faith. A faith formed around consumption and convenience rather than sacrifice and risk. Persecution tests faith. When was the last time that your faith put you at odds with someone else? When was the last time you stepped out in faith and took a risk that made you wholly rely on God? Because that's what Daniel does in this story. He completely relies on God. He steps out knowing that unless God comes through, he is lost. He's actually probably dead. Daniel faces the consequence of his actions. So the satraps, back to the story, found Daniel praying. It wasn't hard. Did it three times a day in front of an open window. Um, they would have been able to see him. I imagine instead of window with glass, I imagine shutters. Um, so they go to the king, snitch on Daniel. We caught him. The king isn't happy. Verse 14, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. But the satraps remind the king that he can't change the law. So Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. I can almost imagine, like you imagine them getting together, okay, what should we do, what should we do? Oh, I've got this massive fiery furnace, why don't we throw them in there? It's like, oh, I've actually tried that before. <laughs> These guys seem to be fireproof. Um, why have we got a lion's den? Why don't we throw them in there? Yeah, great idea, let's do that. So the king knows he's been tricked and manipulated. Verse 16, so the king gave orders, they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. That's a, that's a verse to underline, isn't it? May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. The lion's den is sealed with a stone, and then the stone is sealed with the rings of the kings and the nobles so that no one can get in and rescue Daniel, and Daniel can't get out. Night falls, but who has the best night's sleep? Is it the satraps celebrating their success? We finally got him. Daniel's in the lion's den. They're partying all night. Is it Daniel's friends, no doubt, worried, sick, and praying all night? 
It's not the king. The passage says he can't sleep. He can't, can't, doesn't have his usual entertainment and can't even eat. He doesn't sleep a wink. The king restlessly waits until the morning. Maybe he's heard this story about what happened under the previous King Nebuchadnezzar about Daniel's mate surviving the furnace. Maybe he thinks there's a glimmer of hope that Daniel will get out. Daniel's death was on his conscience. But was there a chance that Daniel might actually be saved by his God? At first light, which may remind you of another story, at first light he hurries to the lion's den. I'm guessing he gets his officials to roll away the stone. When he came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, verse 20, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Verse 21. You can imagine a pause, can't you? Daniel's like, Daniel answered, may the king live forever. Even remembered his manners, even in the lion's den. May God, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I found, was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done anything wrong before you, my, your majesty. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. Three, our God has the power to rescue because of you knew the end of the story you knew there was never it was never in doubt was it daniel's unharmed we're not sure how well he would have slept having lions next to him two things lions are scary big beasts secondly angels are scary big beasts like everywhere in the bible where an angel turns up they have to say do not be afraid if you have to say do not be afraid every time you turn up somewhere you are a scary person so daniel sat there in the lion's den with scary angels and scary lions but and i don't yeah it's funny isn't it angels on like christmas cards and stuff the little chubby cherubs like flowing around with their harps and their that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they turn up and everyone falls on their faces or is petrified. They are war- like Sally Lloyd-Jones in Jesus' Storybook Bible. Warriors of light is how they're described. There's encouragement here. Maybe this morning you feel as though you are trapped in a situation surrounded by lions, surrounded by fear and can't see a way out. There is hope in this story. Deuteronomy 31.6, which is quoted in Hebrews 13, says this, Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 5, Jesus says this as part of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of the righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. No one wants to be rejected, hopefully. No one wants to be unpopular, but sometimes the cost of the gospel is only our minor embarrassment. A bit like when John and Mike went to pray for someone. Like, what is the cost? The cost is mild embarrassment that someone says no. It's not that bad, but the benefits major. There isn't the threat of a beating or being sent, thrown into prison. It's just a slightly awkward no. I wonder if you've spotted a parallel in this story. Someone else unfairly convicted, trapped by a court for doing nothing other than praying and following God. In the same way that King Darius tries to find a way out, Pilate 
could find no guilt in Jesus passing him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate because he can't find him guilty either. Just as innocent Daniel is thrown into the den of lions, Jesus is thrown into the tomb with the stone rolled across. But instead of lions, he faces the cross. And instead of shut mouths, death opens its jaws, but the tomb cannot hold him. It's not the stone holding him in, it's his love for us. Instead of his own salvation and rescue, he purchases our salvation and rescues us. And in dying, he defeats death. To quote Sally Lloyd-Jones again, Jesus was left in the blackness, utterly alone and abandoned by God, suffering the fate that we, the guilty ones, deserved. God did not shut the mouths of Jesus' lions like he did Daniel's. He let them tear him apart. His body was left entombed in the icy grip of death for three days before the angel finally came to roll away his stone. God has the power to rescue God has the power to save, and that is incredibly good news for us if we are suffering. And it's also good news to be shared, to be broadcast, to be gossiped, to be whispered. Sharing the good news of how God has rescued us is incredibly powerful. I've seen that more and more over the last few weeks, just leading the Alpha course, just hearing people's testimony of, oh, actually, God has made this much difference in my life. We can lose sight of that sometimes. We're going to be finishing, well done me, with communion, which is a simple meal, grape juice, gluten-free bread. Yes, it's all gluten-free. And this was a meal that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. And this is the night before he goes to the cross. And he shares it with his disciples who became apostles, all of them. The ones that fell asleep while he prayed. The ones that betrayed him. The ones that abandoned him at the cross. The one who drew near to the cross. The ones that lost hope. The one that denied him three times just that evening. Whatever your situation as we come towards this meal of grape juice and bread. This is for you, if you recognize the forgiveness found on the cross. There is hope in this meal. There is forgiveness in this meal. There is healing in this meal. Because the blood of Jesus and his body broken are the center of this meal. Henri Nouwen says this, this is the way that we live in the world. Taken, blessed, broken and given. This is the pattern of Christ. He says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had taken the bread, he held it up to heaven and blessed it and said, this is my body given for you. And he broke it and he gave it to them. Henri Nouwen says this, this is the pattern of our Lord and this is the pattern that we are to live by. We are chosen, we are taken, we are devoting ourselves to Jesus. We are taken by him taken into the world. We are blessed by God to be a blessing to those around us. But if we're honest, we're broken. Our brokenness, our limps, our imperfections, our flaws are so obvious to us, but they don't disqualify us. In some beautifully perfect, imperfect way, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that it's through the brokenness of our lives that the surpassing greatness of Christ shines. 
Isn't that incredible? I can't get my head around that. It's like when you show up in the world broken, Christ has a way of shining through the brokenness and the cracks of our lives to let the light out and show the power is from God, not from us. Lastly, we're given. We give ourselves as a community for our community. We serve, we love, we open our homes, we open our lives for the sake of the community, that they would be attracted to the person that we were attracted to, that they would see Jesus in our brokenness. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the bread and when he'd given thanks, when he had blessed it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he just said, this is a cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is an invitation at this meal. We're going to have two stations um, at the back of the room, and you might just want to spend some time praying, reflecting. This is a time to repent. This is a time to turn over to God that stuff that's bubbling up in you that you know needs to be burnt away in his holiness. This is a time to accept his forgiveness. This is a time to just to welcome his presence. So if you recognize the importance, the magnitude of this meal and what it signifies, this meal is open to you. There's no qualifying nature of this. If you grasp the magnitude of the cross and how much Jesus loves you, then we would love for you to get involved. The band are going to come down. Yeah, I just want to pray. And then we've got the two stations at the back. Great. Just take a little, take your, you can take the grape juice and the, um, take a little piece of bread and just take it back to your seats. We'll just try and flow back. It's not too busy this morning. Shouldn't be too much carnage. If you are just sitting there thinking, I have no idea what you're doing, this all sounds crazy, and I don't want anything to do with it, don't worry. You're probably not the only one. Just feel free just to sit and let this one go past. There's absolutely no pressure to partake in this. Is that okay? Let me just pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for we, that we see echoes of Jesus in the life of Daniel. We thank you that the Old Testament points to him, anticipates his coming. We thank you that Daniel orientated his prayer and the space he focused and worshipped you around the promised land, around heaven, around this, this sense that something is coming which, which makes us feel slightly alien and foreign here. It's a kingdom of faith and it's a kingdom of hope. And Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness we find there. We thank you that we are restored into right relationship through faith in Jesus. And I just pray, Lord, that that would click for people for the first time. They would know and experience your deep, deep love for them. So as we take this simple meal, a little bit of bread, a tiny cup of grape juice, Lord, would that become more real to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So just in your own time, we've got two stations. They've both got gluten-free bread. Just make your way. And you might want to take this simple meal as with someone you've come with. You don't have to do it alone. You might want to do it as a family. It might be someone. There may be someone here you need. You feel you need to be reconciled to. And actually you would want to share communion with them as well. Feel free to do that as well.
just love to be able to create a space where people can kind of stand with you and to pray with you and um yeah I just had a picture earlier and I just wanted to share it in case it was for someone specific this morning um it's quite a vivid picture of um uh, bear with me is from um the new lord of the rings thing that we've um, been watching and um uh is a, a picture of um these the two kind of characters and they're being chased through the forest by these horrible orcs and then they get to the edge of the forest and um the sun comes out and they step into a clearing and the orcs are almost on them but the orcs can't be in the light and they're able to walk away um, because they are in the light. And I just sense that there's a real power in bringing anything that is hidden and dark into the light. That actually, um, that the enemy would tell you that keeping your, um, your things that you're ashamed of in that place of darkness... Um, is the thing to do, that it will actually keep your reputation, that it will keep your um, standing in the, in the people around you, that people won't disapprove of you, that all of those things that go into your mind when you think about confessing and think about bringing the things that are the dark things in your heart into the light. And I just think that the Lord wants to say this, this morning that actually as you bring things into the light, there is such freedom that actually the... Um, that the enemy has no place, that they could not step into that clearing, even though they were such proximity, that we follow the God who has had the victory. And I just think that the Lord wants to remind you of that this morning and to release um, people from things that actually hold you back um, and, and that God wants to bring freedom. Um, so if any of that resonates with you, we'd love to pray for you. But I just want to just invite the Holy Spirit just to come now. He's here resting on people already. Well, would you come now?